0: Just a reminder that Daylight Savings Time begins this Saturday night. That is day after tomorrow. That So don't forget to set your clocks back. It's the best time of the year. We get an extra hour of sleep. It's always tougher in the spring when we lose that hour. Also, a reminder on the Samaritan's Purse Box, uh, purse boxes that are back in the fellowship hall, and then I will be leaving in the morning to go to Albuquerque, where um, where we're going to have a short conference on prophecy at Hoffmantown Baptist Church, which is where Schaefer Seminary's offices, classrooms, and library are located, and we were, um, uh, we'll be doing that Friday night. Andy Woods is talking about the rapture, at 9 o'clock, or I think actually my session starts at 9.15, his starts at 7.15 Mountain Time on Friday night. Uh, My session starts at 9.15 Saturday morning, Mountain Time, 9.15 to 10.15, then there's a 15 or 20 minute break, and then Charlie Clough is talking about the Millennium and Eternity from 10.30 to I guess that would be 11:30, and then from 11:45 to 12:15 there's a Q&A. So it will be live streamed. That information is on the Dean Bible Ministries website. So that should all the other announcements are getting pretty redundant. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. and the peace of god which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in christ jesus thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee for the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our god shall stand forever as we begin tonight like every other session we always make sure that uh, we are in right relationship with the lord this means that we'll have a few moments of silent prayer And then, when, uh, and that'll give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. And afterwards, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we have to come together to think through what you have taught us in your word that we might come to have a greater understanding of what is being said, why it is being said, and how it fits within the framework of our spiritual life. Father, we pray for this nation as we uh, are approaching the election this next week. We pray that you would restrain the evil that is always present and seems to be uh, more and more overt uh, at this time. And we see so many things going on in this country that are contrary to its founding principles and contrary to the truth of your word. Father, we pray that you would restrain the evil and that you would promote those who have a biblical uh, understanding of truth, that we might be a righteous nation and that we might stand firm for for truth in every area and be a country that is known for uh, righteous judgments. Uh, Across the board, not based on a political persuasion, but based on our political realities, but based on uh, absolute truth and based on the history of our own country and the foundation of law in our Constitution. And we pray that you would help us, that no matter what happens, we may be focused on you, that we may have stability, and that we may have joy and not um, become depressed, discouraged. Uh, no matter what happens, that we might be focused upon your plan for human history and your plan for our nation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're getting into the major section of uh, 1 Peter, which has to do with uh, God, the outworking of God's plan and the individual believer's responsibility and response to authority. And I think that's an excellent way to think about this, is how are we as individuals supposed to respond to those who are in authority over us? Because everybody, in numerous circumstances, has someone over them, they ha- they, whether it's family, whether it's in business or in career. Uh, whether it's in government, whether it's in uh, education, in the classroom, uh, whether it's in the military, everybody has to deal with other self-centered, corrupt, foolish sinners who want to make decisions that govern our lives. And as self-centered, corrupt sinners, we don't like it when some other self-centered, self-absorbed, corrupt sinner wants to tell us to do something that we don't want to do. So we have to learn how to, uh, how to respond to that. And so as we get into this section uh, dealing with uh, submission in relation to slaves to, toward masters and then uh, submission in the home, uh, I want to talk about the underlying spiritual values that are reflected here, uh, humility and grace orientation. And it's going to be interesting As we go through the passage in front of you, because very few translations get to uh, the point, translate correctly a word that shows up in the next few verses that helps us to understand that this is talking about being grace-oriented. So just a reminder, this section began back in uh, verse 13, talking about the believer's responsibility toward government, using the same word that we have in relation to masters and uh, slaves toward masters, wives toward husbands, the word to submit. Now this is a word that is often misunderstood, as I say, and I've said many times before, this is not a doormat type of situation. Jesus submitted to Rome. Jesus submitted um, to his parents. Jesus wasn't a milquetoast doormat. Moses was considered the most humble man in the Old Testament, according to the Lord's estimation, and he was no milquetoast doormat. But we come to the text with these kind of cultural concepts, and then instead of Uh, blowing up the cultural concepts, what we try to do is ram and cram the Bible and twist it into the cultural concepts. So we have to talk about uh, this. Now, at the beginning, we're talking about the divine institutions, and the focus was on the authority of the nation, uh, uh, the authority of government. So we have, uh, just as a review, the first divine institution is individual responsibility. Every single individual is responsible to the Lord every one of us is accountable for every decision we make uh, to the Lord as the sovereign over the universe. Second divine institution is that of marriage. Marriage, the authority, is the husband. Uh, It's not a dictatorship. Uh, Authority structures in the scripture are not necessarily to be viewed within that concept that we think of as a totalitarian dictatorship then we have the family where the authority is the parents and as long as the children are under about 18 i think it is close to it should be close to a tyrannical dictatorship they have to learn Uh, i'm being a little bit facetious there Uh, number four government judicial authority of government it's determined how that authority is worked out is determined by the form of government so how a believer in iran today is going to submit to government is not going to be quite the same as how a citizen in the united states is going to submit to to government because in one form of government there's no option really for appeal and for discussion whereas in uh, the united states there are a number of ways to appeal, uh, recourse to be taken, and these should be taken if if we feel like there is something wrong or unjust that is taking place. Uh, the last divine institution is that is nations, and that is, again, the authority there is God. In Acts 17, God is over, over the nations and established the boundaries. Now, just a few things to think of as we look at... Um, Uh, these, these issues related to the divine institutions. First of all, the basic problem with every human being and every human practice of the divine institutions is sin. And see, that's where as believers we come in, we can approach whatever the framework is in which you live, whether it's military, whether it's education, whether it's family, whatever it is, is a recognition that the people that you're dealing with are probably controlled by their sin nature, certainly a major factor in their life. And that sin nature is going to mess up just anything. You can have a uh, an athletic situation and some coach lets his sin nature gets the, be- gets the best of him and you're going to have problems. Uh, marriage, everything, it boils down to the sin nature. So I wanted to start by just reviewing a little bit uh, the sin nature and looking at our sin nature chart. The basic orientation of every sin nature is the self. And this self-absorption, this arrogance, the I will mirrored in the five I wills of uh, Satan in Isaiah 12:14 through 16, those I wills indicate what drives just about everybody. I will, I will, what I want. I'm self-absorbed and it's all about me. And so that drives these lust patterns. We see things in the creation that we have to have in order to make life work for us in terms of our idolatrous conception of what brings happiness and joy and and stability. And we, as individuals and as societies or cultures, trend in one of two directions. And these aren't consistent. You can have one person who is... Licentious in some areas and uh, extremely legalistic in other areas. The same is true for cultures. Cultures mirror those same things. So we can think of a culture today that is extremely legalistic and tends to take a very high moral ground. And what would that be? We can think of ISIS you know, with their militant jihadism. Driven by the arrogance of false teaching, driven by the arrogance of Allah and Muhammad, and yet at the same time as they're recruiting all of these uh, young men to come fight for them, the sexual licentiousness that occurs the the, the raping the sexual sins that are taking place there usually with non uh, Muslims, although also with, with some, it, it's justified. So there's a licentiousness that goes along uh, with the legalism. And that's usually true. You think of the Pharisees, very legalistic, yet in some ways uh, they are antinomian because they're rejecting the ultimate authority of Scripture. So these are not always mutually exclusive type of categories, but they are excellent categories for breaking down understanding human behavior, the behavior of your children, the behavior of your friends, the behavior of a nation, and, and these things are, are taking place. So if the trend is towards asceticism or legalism, what it produces is a sort of moral degeneracy, words that are usually not linked together. But you see it in the Pharisees. They're clearly degenerate in their arrogance. But it's a degeneracy from from um, uh, it's a g- degeneracy from morality, just like any jihadist who is uh, emphasizing um, Sharia law is also the same kind of moral arrogance, and it's a degenerate mentality because it's fueled by ar- by arrogance, and this will produce a ordered or structured approach to life. And it will produce a lot of rationality. Uh, in contrast, you have the trend towards licentiousness, which means that just a license to sin or do whatever a person wants, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, moral relativism. Lasciviousness is the promotion of uh, sexual uh, lust and this is evidence in the ancient world where you had all of these fertility religions and all of these orgies and things that were going on and and that's mirrored a a lot in different areas of our own culture today. And then just antinomianism, that we don't have to submit to any ultimate uh, law. And that produces an immoral degeneracy. It produces, in terms of thinking, it produces irrationality as opposed to rationality. Rationality is based on logic. It's very structured. It's very ordered. But irrationality is not. You can't. It's very difficult to try to uh, express, um, for example, the gospel and arguments for the truth of Scripture. Arguments for the truth of Scripture are inherently logical. But try to use logic with somebody who's illogical or irrational. It's impossible. You're talking two different languages, and it's ultimately mystical because some, it's looking internally for the ultimate guidepost for for some kind of value system, and it's based just on intuition, not something that's based on logic or reason or absolutes. Now, the reason I set this up is because when we get into the ancient world and we look at uh, the civilizations produced by Greece and Rome, they manifest these characteristics through their paganism. They manifest these characteristics of the sin nature. And in both Greece and Rome, there is a high value placed on a very orderly structured society that in order for the nation to survive, in order to have national health. In Greece for the polis to be healthy, you had uh, much that was written by the ancient philosophers such Socrates, Plato, uh, Aristotle, many many others down through the uh, centuries wrote about the importance of family and wrote about the importance of, of, uh, of, of marriage, that it was in the home that you provided the teaching the instruction that's passed on as you go from generation to generation they recognize that that's part of establishment truth but they also perverted it because that's what the sin nature does so they have this trend towards a moral degeneracy in those areas and they were very uh, very strong and they were very adamant about that and the um The Greek moral philosophers wrote quite a bit about this. Uh, Xenophon, uh, Plutarch, Seneca uh, was Roman, and so they emphasized the fact that marriage and family were the central features that were necessary to preserve and protect the national entity. And the result of this was a sort of legalism that protected marriage and family and the nation. But what we see the trend in um, in our culture with the advent of postmodernism, postmodernism, think back to the sin nature, postmodernism is a, an epistemological, that means in terms of knowledge and authority, it's an epistemological uh, irrationalism. It rejects all authority, and truth is whatever you want it to be, so it is Like the moral degeneracy, I mean the immoral degeneracy and the moral relativism of the period of the judges. Everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. And we look at what's going on just in terms of the political battle today uh, and understanding the whole issue with the Clintons. And they are as corrupt. There's more and more evidence. It's just it, it it's not just overwhelming, it it's it's overpowering. It just it's snowballing now. This evidence there's five different criminal uh federal criminal investigations against either the Clintons or the uh uh Clinton Foundation, and yet we have a culture that is so um so uh Inured to this kind of thing that it doesn't seem to matter. And they want to make more of an issue out of somebody's foolish, uh, crude talk than somebody's criminal actions, which shows a culture that is not oriented to logic or reason anymore. They're not comparing, uh, apples to apples. They're comparing, they're, they're saying that somebody's criminality is somehow uh, no worse than somebody's just foolish, crude talking. They're not com- in, in, in comparison or, uh, any comparison whatsoever. And so then we have this whole culture that's in Western civilization. We see it in a more developed sense in, in Western Europe where there there's this promotion of uh, sexual licentiousness and sexual immorality, and you've got the rise of of pornography that has been going on for at least 20 or 30 years in uh, Germany and many European countries as if this doesn't have any impact on marriage or or the family or relationships, and it's just gotten out, out of completely out of control. You have the, um, rise of, uh, sexual perversion in homosexual relations, a rise in legitimacy of homosexuality to the point that if you take a traditional stance, you're viewed as the enemy. And now this has come to America, and we have a Supreme Court that's legitimized homosexual marriage, and we've just seen so many extremely crude and distasteful things that are now part of uh, the national dialogue ever since... Uh, the dalliances of Bill Clinton in the White House back in the 90s. It's just lowered the level of discourse in this country to the gutter. There's no longer any sense of decorum, any sense of what, what should be talked about uh, in front of children. Or I mean, most children are exposed to things that I still don't know anything about um, because that wasn't part of the culture we, we grew up. We did not have that exposure to the uh, sexual perversion and uh, sexual degeneracy. But a lot of that was also true in the Roman Empire, but they, did, they weren't legitimizing um, the destruction of the family. They had Augustus promoted several laws, uh, as did Tiberius, uh, that were uh, emphasizing the family and made it difficult for divorce to take place that made uh, harsh punishments uh, when it was brought to bear on on um, uh, adultery and immorality that broke down the family. And so there was this strong emphasis on the family because they understood that. We live in a culture today that doesn't understand that strong marriage and strong family is the key to a strong nation. You destroy the family and the marriage. Even if it's a distorted pagan view like they had in Rome, it wasn't anything like the biblical pattern. Even if it's a pagan view, it still provided a structure socially and and politically for the nation and, and preserved that nation for... Uh, many centuries. So when once that starts breaking down in a licentious manner, it's not long before the nation's going to just internally collapse, because there's no, uh, there's nothing that's passed on, no values that are passed on uh, to the next to the next generation. So we see these kinds of things that were taking place in the ancient world. Um, Seneca who is a Roman philosopher, wrote uh, that in relationship to understanding the importance of conduct within the family and within the household, they had these household codes of conduct that they were constantly writing about uh, in, in, among the philosophers of the ancient world. And he wrote, no one will do his duty as he ought unless he has some principle to which he may refer his conduct." In other words, he recognized there is some sort of external absolute that gives meaning to uh, any code of conduct. Um, Others have said that no finite reference point has any meaning unless it is related to an infinite reference point. In other words, if we don't have a universal absolute, then nothing else in life can matter you can't bring bring meaning and value to that and so he said uh, we must set before our eyes the goal of the supreme good for philosophers the latin was sumum bonum They're, they're just this philosophical idea where it came from they don't know Uh, they can't explain. They're just this ultimate good, and that is what we have to understand. He said, we must set before our eyes the goal of the supreme good, towards which we may strive, and to which all our acts and words may have reference, just as sailors must guide their course according to a certain star. Well, when you get into the Scripture, it's the the Scripture it is the Almighty God who has regenerated us that Peter explains is the one who has revealed to us these absolutes, and only when we 're oriented to him it's not some abstract philosophical concept that gives meaning uh, to uh, to right and wrong and how to d- deal with certain situations, but it is an orientation to the Scripture and to the Word of God, so the third point is that in the New Testament, the Christian writers seek to straighten out these crooked, slightly distorted so-called ethics of the household codes. What they're writing, what Paul writes in Ephesians 5 and 6, and what Peter writes here in 1 Peter 2, what Paul writes in Colossians 3 related to uh, husbands loving your wives, wives submitting to your husbands, children being obedient to parents, parents loving their children, raising them in the admonition of the Lord. These fit the patterns of these so-called household codes, these ethical uh, standards that were written about in the in the broader Greco-Roman culture. But like every culture, even though they have elements that are true, they're just a pale reflection. They're a distorted reflection of biblical truth. So it's it, Peter and Paul and and James and John are not getting their values from the culture. They're not getting their family values from Rome and Greece. They're getting their family values from the Old Testament. And then they are seeking to correct the distorted family values that were present in in Roman Roman culture so we have to understand that in, in the Roman culture there's an emphasis on submission S- but slaves when they were to submit to ma- masters they were viewed as as non relevant Animals—they were—they were chattel. They were insignificant. They had no legal standing. But when the Bible, in a human viewpoint, uh, in mean, a divine viewpoint framework, addresses them, it understands that they have volition. That's the command: servants, be submissive to your masters. That's divine institution number one. You have a choice. No one else. In their culture, treated a slave as someone who had who could make decisions and who was treated with honor and respect so that 's just one way in which there 's a similarity, so that when when um, when Peter says that slaves submit to your masters it 's not the same as when the pagan says "You submit to your master because how they implement that in their view of the individual. Individual involved is very, uh, very much different. So, on the fourth point, which I mentioned already, the biblical framework is the Old Testament. The Old Testament takes us back to Genesis chapter one, where God says, "Let us create man in our image." So, even the lowest member in society, the slave, and no one was lower than the slave, uh, had no legal rights, no legal standing, wasn't even considered a person. That that in biblical viewpoint, they're to be treated with honor and respect because they are created in the image and likeness of God. So they were to submit, but there's a recognition in the text that there are going to be times when the person you have to submit to isn't worthy of it. He's he's harsh. And if you look at your, we'll get to the verse a little bit in a minute, but if you look at verse 18, Peter says servants be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle but also to the harsh now what does he mean by harsh well harshness was legitimized in the practice of slave slavery in the Roman Empire they could abuse the slaves they could be harsh to them in many uh, many different ways uh, they could uh, physically beat them in many different ways, and this is, uh, that was legitimized. But if you look at the context, Paul goes, I mean, Peter goes on to praise him and says, for this is commendable, if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, and it's the next phrase I want to emphasize, it says, suffering wrongly, wrongfully, suffering wrongfully is parallel to the harsh. And so what we have here is a situation where the harsh is defined by that word wrongfully, which is the Greek word adikos, which is the alpha prefix a, which means something that's a a negative like our prefix un. And... um, and the word dikos for righteousness. So it's unrighteous. So it's not suffering wrongfully. A better translation would be suffering unrighteously. So it's it's a recognition that this harshness is unjust. But nevertheless, the slave is commanded to be submissive and show respect for authority's sake to... um, to the master. So point number five, well, we have to recognize that in the social legal structure of Rome, which was very concerned with maintaining order, that's why they spent so much time talking about the fact you have to teach authority in the home, you have to teach the children, you have to pass these values on, and that the marriage and family are at the core of uh, the success of the nation. They were very concerned about these new religions that would pop up, like Christianity, that they might teach anarchy and try to reverse the uh, right uh, understanding and application of the roles of husbands and fathers and wives and parents uh, in the uh, in the Roman Empire. There was a cult, the ISIS cult. Uh, the worship of one of the Egyptian uh, female deities, that that the women were in charge. It was, promoted a matriarchal authority structure uh, within the family, and this was illegal in Rome for that reason, not because of all the other stuff that went along with the paganism. It was because it would bring disorder in the family and a breakdown of the home and, and lead to a breakdown and anarchy within the within the culture. So the apostles are also concerned uh, that Christians not use their freedom in a licentious manner, which would be viewed as anarchy uh, and the disruption of society. So this is why um, they are uh, commanded to not use their freedom as a license. Under the sixth point, Though New Testament writers do not directly address the social perversions such as slavery and abortion and infanticide, which were practiced in uh, in Roman culture, uh, though they didn't address those things, they f- they addressed the more significant underlying factor. Their focus was not on changing the culture at that upper level, but doing something that was even more insidious that would eventually lead to the transformation of that culture. And that was uh, emphasizing that, um, that Christians would use their freedom in Christ in a way that would lead to a transformation of the culture. Christians were to view themselves as slaves to God. That's the background here. Um, There's this clear analogy that the slaves are to submit to your masters, and Christians are doulos, uh, douloi, to God, and so they are to, in the same way, be submissive to God. Christians were to view themselves as slaves to God, and they were to focus on personal transformation into the image of Christ. If Christians are transforming themselves into the image of Christ, and that would include both witnessing as well as personal spiritual growth, then they are going to be transforming the ideas that are inherent in the culture. And that eventually is what will, what did transform the paganism of Rome and Western civilization, the paganism of the Celts and the paganism of the Goths and the Visigoths and all the other groups that were in Europe, they were all rank pagans, but they were transformed not by revolution, not by imposing a top-down solution, but by the personal transformation of individuals as they trusted in Christ and were regenerated and then uh, and then grew. So that was the that's the approach of the writers of scripture. Not to try to impose this by overturning the government, creating some sort of revolution, but by changing the lives, the thinking, the orientation of each individual believer. So when we look at first Peter two eighteen, first Peter two eighteen, Peter says servants are to be submissive to your masters with all fear, and that word for servants, as I pointed out last time, is the word for household slaves that were just marginally uh, better treated than the uh, field slaves, and he's treating them, and he uh, addresses them, and he says that they are to be submissive to your masters. We talked about this last time, the word "hupitasso," which means to submit yourselves. you are to follow the leadership and carry out the orders of the person in authority, whether they um, are—unless it directly contradicts the Word of God. Now, their ability to maybe negotiate with their master was limited, uh, and at times they couldn't do it at all because their treatment was rather harsh. And Peter deals with that uh, here. He sees the question coming, and he says, "'Even if they're harsh, then you are to be good and gentle.'" That is part of grace orientation. But he says that they are to be submissive with all fear. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this come up. At the end of uh, the previous section in verse 17, uh, Peter said to honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. But it didn't start there either. It started back in 1 Peter one seventeen, where Peter said, and if you call on the father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. That is ultimately in fear of the authority of God. And in the ancient world, fear had two different components to it, just as it does in our our thinking. And Aristotle defines the distinction here in um, one of his Uh, treatises in Economica, um, and he writes, "...the fear which virtuous and honorable sons feel towards their fathers and loyal citizens towards right-minded rulers has for its companions reverence and modesty." So if fear is oriented in the right way towards submission to the authority and respect for the authority then it produces an upright citizen. On the other kind is felt by slaves for masters and subjects for despots who treat them with injustice and wrong, and it's associated with hostility and hatred. Just thought I'd throw that out. So the idea that Peter is talking about here is the first kind that is characterized by virtue, and it's characterized by reverence, and modesty in scripture we see that the fear of the lord is the foundation for all knowledge submission to the authority of god that the starting point for all knowledge isn't with just abstract knowledge going out and learning things so that you can make a better living see this is a problem that's happened in in our culture and it has some uh subtle but devastating effects that we learn, we have an education for a pragmatic reason, to go make more money. Well, that doesn't always work as a good motivation. Ultimately, in the history of this country, what motivated people to be educated was so that they could understand God's creation, and they could understand God, and they could understand God's Word. And so today, under our pragmatic system of education, which is built on just just basically serving the state, We have about a 65 to 70 percent um, rate of uh, reading comprehension, and so you have uh, many places where people can't uh, can't even read. the they're, uh, uh, They're they're just ignorant of reading. Whereas you go back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and 95 to 97 percent in the 1600s of everyone in every village could read. Now that's incredible. But the reason is they they felt everybody had to read so that they could read their Bible. And that's a much higher and honorable and virtuous motivation than going out and making money to pay your taxes for the state. And people responded differently that way in the 1600s. So, but what happens is that when people go negative to God and reject God, then they hate knowledge and they uh, hate hate the Lord and they no longer choose the fear of the Lord. That's Proverbs 1, uh, 29. Now, as we look at this command in, in uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, where servants are to be submissive to your masters, um, with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. And that word, therefore, commendable, it shows up again in verse 20. You'll never guess what the word for commendable is there. It's the Greek word, I don't have it on this slide for this verse. It's the Greek word charis, which is the word for grace. In other words, what Peter specifically does here is he says submission to authority, even an unjust authority, is grace. It's undeserved favor. It's unmerited goodness. It is grace. It is grace orientation. Somebody who is not authority-oriented, somebody who's not submissive to their uh, parents not submissive to their husband, not submissive to their teacher, not submissive. will never understand grace. They lack humility. They lack grace. They lack humility orientation. So, uh, I mean, authority orientation. So what we have here is a clear statement. This is grace. Because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. And so what he explains there with the word for indicating he's explaining his primary statement, he says uh, it's because of conscience towards God. That has to be the motivation. You're doing the right thing because that's what God says to do. And as a result of treating this harsh, unjust person in grace, you're, you have the right motivation, and you endure grief, and you suffer uh, unjustly, and that is accepted. Now, in other passages, we have the same sort of admonition to slaves in Titus two nine, exhort bond servants, that is slaves, to be obedient to their own masters, to be well pleasing in all things, not answering back, so they're not. Uh, displaying a lack of respect for their master. In Ephesians 6, 5 and following, Paul says, Bondservants, the same word, it's douloi, it's a word for slaves. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart. That means that you're not talking behind their back, you're not showing them respect, uh, when they're in the in your presence, and then disrespect when they're out of your presence, uh, in sincerity of heart or thinking, as to Christ, Paul just keeps hitting us between the eyes with this: that how we respond to earthly authorities is a barometer of how we respond to the authority of Christ. How we respond to the authority of Christ is how we should respond to the earthly authorities that are put over us, because. As he's already said, no authority exists aside from uh, the permission of God. So we are to uh, respond to authority. Uh, our slaves would respond to masters as to Christ, not with eye service. And this has application to to working for an employer. He may not have the same level of authority over you as a as a work as a slave, but uh, you should work for him, not just. Um, giving him eye service, so as long as he's, he's uh, looking, you're going to do a good job, but when he's not looking, then you're going to slough off, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Ultimately, you, I don't know who your boss is or where you work, but you just think you're working for them. You're really working for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the pattern that we see in Scripture. Doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill, doing, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. There he uses that comparison again. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he's slave or free. And that takes place at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be rewards to those who are serving, especially in an unjust circumstance, and doing it to please the Lord with the right grace-oriented attitude. And then Ephesians 6, 9 is the flip side. Paul's address to masters do the same thing to them. Well, that works great if you're in a situation where you're working for a Christian master, you're a slave to a Christian. But if you're not and you're a slave to an unbeliever, then it may be an extremely uh, harsh situation as Peter recognizes. So this is commendable if we suffer unjustly and do it out of grace and kindness because we're serving the Lord. And then Peter goes on to develop this and says, for what credit is it or what value is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Even in the Roman world, the ethicists of the ancient Greco-Roman culture recognized that if a slave is disobedient, then he justly deserves whatever he gets. And they also understood that it was better to suffer for injustice than than to suffer because you had done something wrong. So um, he says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, there's two words here that we need to pay attention to. The first word is the word for patient usually the word for patient or the word patient translates the greek word makrothemia which means long suffering that's the idea of patience this isn't the idea of patience this is the idea of endurance it's the greek word hupo mino. mino is the root verb that means to abide to stay in a tough situation over a long period of time hupa is the Uh, prepositional prefix that means to stay under something in a tough tough situation so when you do he says uh, what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults you endure it hupomeno but when you do good and suffer if you take it patiently that is if you endure this is grace toward God that's our word charis for commendable again emphasizing this is grace orientation and you know we think of the basics in terms of the spiritual skills as as a confession and walking by the spirit faith rest drill doctrinal orientation and grace orientation this is grace orientation this is grace it's humility it's obedience to authority even when that authority is wrong and it's not always trying to justify yourself uh, to that authority. But see, our sin natures don't like it because it's all about me and getting my way. But that's why we have authority. One, one benefit of authority structures is because it teaches us not to be so selfish and to always get our own way. So this is grace orientation. Now this word hoopamino is found in another very important context. It's found over in James, uh, chapter one, verses two through four, and that's just a couple of pages back. Hebrews, James, and First Peter. So it's one or two pages back to your left, and I want you to take a look. Just turn back there three or four pages with me uh, to the opening of James. Now, James is an epistle that's very similar to 1 Peter, and it's dealing with, uh, once again, the Jewish background believers in the diaspora that are scattered, and it is a, and James was probably the first epistle that was written in the New Testament. And there are a lot of similarities between um, James 1, 2 through 4, and the opening of uh, uh, first Peter, especially in First Peter chapter one, uh, verses six through eight, there are a number of key words that I pointed out when we went th- there. The idea of joy in the midst of uh, difficult circumstances and in trials. First, uh, First Peter one six. In this, you greatly rejoice though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Well, one of those various trials would be having to submit to an unjust authority. Uh, that the genuineness of your faith, uh, that's related to the idea of the testing of your faith in James one three. That the genuineness or the approval of your faith being more, much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That's the word that's used there for testing in James 3. Um, uh, documazo. So you see there's these parallels. Well, in James 1 2, James is talking to believers and he addresses them as my brethren. That's important. All the way through James, he's addressing them as my brethren. These are believers, these are not unbelievers. And nothing in James is talking about uh, uh, what you do for unbelievers. That uh, gets very important in James chapter 2. My brethren, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And many of us have been in situations, some of us have been in circumstances where um, we've been under an unjust authority, somebody who has... Um, Uh, treated us wrong in a lot of different ways maybe somebody who was completely unrealistic you might have somebody heard the story today of uh, an individual who was working at a job and had a supervisor who blackballed that person and made a list of numerous complaints against that person none of which was uh none of which was true and um and that person appealed and wrote in response to it and eventually had to change their job. Uh, but this kind of thing happens when we live in the devil's world. There are all kinds of different circumstances and situations that we may come into where we have to deal with an unjust authority. I had a a a, a boss, that I, a man I went to work for, for a job when I was in seminary, and uh, it turned out that he was a crook I knew there I didn't know it at the time but I knew that there was something wrong and I just quit but I had a the reason I got the job was I had a longtime friend and I'd also known his wife for many years long before they were married or or, are involved and this was her father-in-law now that'll test your integrity of your marriage if you're working for your father in law and he's a crook and um, he's using the business in an illegal manner and you're the one who ends up being the whistleblower, usually never ends well. Uh, but this is a problem in a fallen world. We run into these kinds of circumstances and they're tests of our integrity. So as Christians, when we fall into these kinds of tests, we need to add it up. That's the word count there. It's an um, accounting term, and it means to think it through, think through the issues and add it up. And the bottom line is joy because we don't know how God is using it in our lives, so we are to focus on him and have joy no matter what uh, the circumstances are. So when you fall into various trials, count it joy. I happen to think that this is The primary uh, command, if you want to be Star Trek, this is the prime directive for James for this epistle. And everything else in the epistle of James is written to help you understand how to do this, because this isn't easy. Any of us who have gone through really difficult times know that uh, it's not easy to just have joy and peace and stability in the midst of horrible circumstances. But the reason we can do this is given in verse 3, because we know something. We have an understanding of biblical truth. We know a, a principle, a fact, that the testing, documento, it's a word that means to evaluate, not to evaluate to see what's wrong, but to evaluate to see what's positive. It's the same word that's used in relation to the judgment seat of Christ. All of our works are burned up, not to expose the wood, hay, and straw, but to expose the, the good, the, the gold, silver, and precious stones. So the idea of of testing here is an evaluation to expose what's good, what's, what's valuable. Because you know that the testing of your faith, and here it's not your ability to trust, but what you trust or the doctrine that's in your soul. Because you know that the testing or the evaluation of the doctrine in your soul produces not um, not patience again, but endurance. The ability to hang in there and to apply the word of God. But let endurance have its perfect Result And that word there in the Greek indicates maturity, that you may become mature and complete, lacking nothing. So Peter is talking about this same kind of thing back in 1 Peter 2.20. You're involved in a specific situation where you're uh, unjustly uh, beaten. And he says if you take it with endurance and you do the right thing in the midst of a wrong situation— then that is grace toward god that is a grace oriented solution then we go on in 1 peter 2:21 and peter says for to this you were called now that's an interesting phrase isn't it how many times do we use the word calling in reference to personal adversity and suffering We may think about the fact that we're called to the mission field, or you hear people say they were given a spiritual calling to the pastor, or you have a vocation. The word vocation is the word uh, from the Latin word vocare, which means to have a calling. And one of the doctrines that was recovered during the Protestant Reformation, and I know many of you remembered on Monday we celebrated Reformation Day, October 31st. When um, to commemorate the 499th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg. Next year will be the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. One of the doctrines we covered was that every believer had a calling. Every believer had a calling. It was related to your talents, your spiritual gift. Maybe God gave you a vocation a calling to be a ditch digger or to be a, a, a computer programmer or to be a lawyer or to be a uh, work in law enforcement or to be a teacher, but everybody has a calling, not just the pastors, not just the uh, spiritual leaders. That was the era of the Roman Catholic teaching. Was only the priests had a calling. Everybody else is laity. That that's where you get this this clergy laity distinction. That the lay people are just uh, they're they're just the common people. They're not they don't have a calling from God. Whereas the Protestant Reformation came back and gave value uh, to the to the individual. But rarely in the discussion of calling, do you, have I ever heard anybody say that we are called to submission. We are called to suffering. We are called to being gracious in the midst of difficult circumstances. But that's exactly how Peter uses it. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. That's our pattern. He is the example that we should follow his steps. Now, what are those steps? Well, this is what comes up in the quote from 1 Peter Peter 2.22, who committed no sin, Jesus committed no sin, therefore he was never worthy of any injustice. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Now, Isaiah 53, 9 is where that is found in the second part of the verse. The whole verse reads, And they made his grave with the wicked. That is, Jesus died between two thieves. He made his grave with the wicked, but the rich at his death. So he's buried in the tomb of a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. Then, because he had done no violence, literally no nothing wrong, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So he is totally free from, uh, from censure. You can't say he did anything wrong. Whatever happened to him, his crucifixion, was not because he had broken any law or done anything wrong. And then Peter goes on to describe this in verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. He didn't talk back. He, when he went to the cross, he was silent, As a lamb before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, yell, scream, throw a tantrum, go into a depression, but committed himself to him who judges rightly. He put it in the Lord's hands. He was going to go through unimaginable suffering for something he never did, but it would secure our salvation. He was going to suffer on our behalf. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. This is a great verse to memorize. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. That's our purpose, is to live for righteousness. By whose stripes you are healed. Now that is a quote from Isaiah 53. And then he goes on in verse 25 to say, For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the pattern that we're going to see developed by Peter in the next chapter is that Jesus is the pattern for handling unjust suffering, and submitting to authority. And this is seen in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And we're going to stop here and come back and develop Philippians 2 and some other things to think about uh, as we talk about submission in the coming weeks. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded of your grace toward us and that you are the ultimate judge and authority And whatever circumstance or situation we deal with in this life that is unjust and unrighteous, that you will make things right eventually. And we're promised that there will be rewards at the judgment seat of Christ for our obedience to you, our grace orientation, treating those who do not deserve it with the kindness and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.